Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's podcast time again. It's podcast o'clock. Here's a new episode. This one's all about my trip to Japan. Uh, Before we get started, let me just uh, let you know that this episode is sponsored by Spoken, uh, which is uh, that service that gives you English lessons uh, with a real teacher on your phone using messaging apps. And um, actually, I just want to give you at this point a testimony about Spoken. This is... um, uh, something that was sent to me by a listener to the podcast who uh, tried out Spoken. And uh, so this is a quick testimony about Spoken. This will take a couple of minutes, but I would just like to give you an idea of what happens in a typical Spoken lesson. Um, I try to be quite careful about the sponsors that I have on this show. And I want to show you that Spoken is a real service that could be genuinely useful to you. You can take it or leave it. Um, recently I got another message from one of my listeners explaining what happened in her first uh, lesson with Spoken and generally it sounds positive so here is her report and it'll just take a couple of minutes all right so it goes like this hi Luke Uh, as I told you yesterday on Facebook I'm going to try and explain my experience of my first free lesson with Spoken so here I go first of all we use Telegram although you can use other kinds of messenger apps, for example, uh, WeChat or WhatsApp. Uh, To start, Henry, my tutor, introduced himself by text and also with a voice message. It was a bit strange speaking with someone without knowing him and without seeing each other. Plus, he spoke quite quickly and I wasn't ready for that. But The fact that I couldn't prepare myself made it so spontaneous and challenging, and I think this will make me improve faster. Anyway, I told him about that, and he slowed down a bit and started with the lesson. Uh, Everything was going fine. He was so friendly and serious at the same time, and I liked that. Uh, Despite the fact that my level of English was too low for that kind of lesson, which I realised just then and there during the lesson, despite, you know, the fact that my level was, wasn't quite high enough, Henry was very patient and thoughtful. Uh, then we really started the lesson. He told me that we were starting with some vocabulary and expressions for a job interview. He asked me uh, how many of the words uh, in a list I didn't know, and it was awful because I only knew a few of them. Uh, anyway, uh, after this bit of reading, um, I told him my doubts um, by sending some voice messages to him. I told him that maybe I was taking the wrong kind of lesson because my goal is to take the FCE exam in September, and maybe I was in the wrong place. He told me that uh, they were specialised in business, but they were also working on preparing exams, and he encouraged me to try it, and yes, we continued. He, he then sent me some pro tips about the use of verb tenses and he sent me a building your response exercise. I asked him if I had to write or speak and he let me decide, so I chose to speak. Then another matching exercise and again I chose to speak. Uh, after those two exercises, he corrected my mistakes and then he sent me some amazing audio feedback and this part was awesome. 
The audio started only with a rhythmic sound without speaking. And then a person started to add the sentences, stressing the accent just with the rhythm of the sound. And it was fantastic. To finish, he asked me to choose just two sentences from the list and record them, trying to stress the syllables correctly. He corrected my typical Spanish mistakes. And then that was the end of the lesson. Almost an hour and a half. Stunning. Then we shared our local towns, we laughed a bit with each other, and we said goodbye until the next les lesson, which I definitely booked just after I finished. Well, that's all until my next lesson. I hope that my experience helps you, and if you need more things, just tell me. Take care, Mamen. So that is Mamen's experience with Spoken. It seemed positive, and I guess if it can work for her, then it can work for you too. Uh, to give it a try, go to uh, getspoken.com slash LEP or click a Spoken logo on my site. And if you do that, you can get two free lessons and then 20% off all of their courses. Okay. All right. So that's the Spoken promo and a little report on what it's actually like. Now let's get on with the episode. And here we go. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Right, so hello again. Welcome back to the podcast. As you know, I just came back from a little holiday in Japan that I had uh, with my wife last week. And we spent about eight days there in total. And um, I'm going to talk about it here because I thought that you might like to know about the trip. Um, you know, sometimes I do these episodes about traveling experiences that I've had, and they seem to be quite popular with you, my audience. Uh, for example, I've done episodes about going to India, uh, to Vietnam, to Indonesia, uh, to New York, uh, to different parts of France, uh, California, and Thailand. And they all seem to be quite popular episodes. And in this episode now, or perhaps these episodes, if it's long, uh, I'm going to do another one. And this time it's all about uh, my recent trip to Japan from last week. So here's another travel episode with a few stories, some descriptions of places, uh, culture, experiences, and other general ramblings about my reflections on the time spent in the land of the rising sun. Uh, for the dedicated language learners out there and the Orion, uh, the Orion team transcribers, um, those of you who are paying attention to every single word and using this whole thing as a chance to pick up new language, um, you should know that a lot of what I'm saying in this episode is written in the form of notes um, on the page for this episode. So check the page for this episode. You will see a lot of the words and phrases and notes and things that I'm I'm reading from uh, uh, copied there. So you can, you know, read those things and check any new words that you hear. Or if you're transcribing this as part of the Orion Transcription Project, then you can use my notes, just copy them into your Google document, and then essentially just fill in the blanks. Just fill in those bits where I improvise details or speak off script. So you can just add in the bits that are not written down. <clears throat> um, okay, so I've no idea how long this is going to take, but it will take as long as it takes, I suppose. Um, and uh, I'll divide it into several episodes if it gets too long. But essentially, I'm just going to talk about uh, as, you know, as many of the thoughts that I had while I was in Japan and give you the, all the descriptions that I think <clears throat> will be necessary to help you to understand what it was really like 
uh, to get give you an idea of, of my experience there, okay? Now, I've done at least one episode about Japan before. Um, if you are a long-term listener, you might have heard it. I did an episode um, about uh, Japan, and that's number uh, episode number 118 called Sick in Japan. You can find that in the um, uh, archive uh, for this podcast on my website. Uh, that episode uh, has a full transcript, by the way, uh, fully transcribed. The transcript is published on the page, so you can read along while you listen if you want to do that. Um, and uh, that episode tells the story of how I ended up sick in a hospital bed in Japan more than 15 years ago, uh, feeling physically terrible and mentally very panicked, uh, not knowing what was wrong with me. Um, I just ended up in this hospital bed uh, after I got really sick and I didn't know what was wrong with what, what, what was wrong with me. I didn't know. It was really weird and horrible. Um, and uh, do you remember that? Uh, if you haven't heard that, then I do recommend listening to that one. You might enjoy it. Uh, it was quite a sort of a, an important moment for me, really. Um, basically, I got very sick uh, in Japan because, you know, I used to live in Japan, right? Um, I, I used to live there and, and worked there as an English teacher um, many years ago in 2002 and 2003. That was my first experience as an English teacher. Um, <clears throat> so I used to live there when I was like in my early to mid uh, in, in my early to mid 20s is when I was living there. And I got really sick. Um, and I, in fact, I spent two weeks, even before I went to hospital, I spent a couple of weeks essentially lying on my bed in my apartment at home, getting more and more ill, feeling absolutely horrendous, um, unable to eat, unable to sleep, even though I was very tired, and I was in a lot of pain from a horrible infection. And, um, you know, the, the problem was that I didn't really have anyone to kind of look after me. I was kind of on my own out there. And um, the company I was working for I mean, they let me have the time off, but, you know, beyond that, they weren't really helping me out very much. So I was kind of on my own, getting really sick, very scared because I didn't know what was wrong. Eventually, I got to a doctor who agreed to treat me. And after taking a blood test, he informed me in slightly broken English, right? He told me in, in fairly broken English, uh, and that was part of the problem, right? That, that he didn't manage to explain exactly what the situation was. And so I still didn't even know when I went to a hospital on the first couple of nights in, in the hospital bed, I still didn't know what was wrong with me. But the doctor, bef before I went, you know, as, just before he sent me to hospital, um, he told me, you know, looking at the results of the blood test, he was like, okay, you have a very high white blood cell count in your blood. You have liver damage. You need to go to hospital and you will need an operation. These are the things he told me. And naturally, you know, I, I totally freaked out. You know, I was really devastated and scared because, to be honest, his diagnosis was a little bit lost in translation. And it wasn't really as bad as I thought. In reality, it wasn't that bad. But, you know, when I heard those words, like, you have liver damage, you need to go to hospital, you will need an operation. When I heard, heard those words, I sort of assumed the worst, you know, and I just assumed that I needed like a liver transplant. They were going to like remove my liver because there was something wrong with it. Like I had some weird liver disease and they were going to remove my liver and, you know, give me a new liver. And I remember the first night in the hospital bed, 
feeling like I was going to die or something and not knowing what was wrong with me and thinking that I was going to be given an operation to get a liver transplant, right? I mean, it turned out that it wasn't at all as serious as that. I mean, I was pretty ill uh, and I definitely needed to go to a hospital in order to rest, but I didn't know that. And, you know, the worst thing was that I was worrying that they were going to give me a Japanese liver. For some reason, this scared me because I thought, oh my God, you know, is it going to work? You know, maybe it won't work with my body and maybe I won't be able to drink beer like I could before. Maybe I'm not going to be able to drink alcohol in the same uh, way that I could before. And this, for some reason, was the worst thing, that I wouldn't be able to drink beer um, even if I survived, I wouldn't be able to drink beer, you know. So it's just very strange, weird paranoia, weird fear, and just general ridiculousness. And naturally, it turned out okay in the end. And in fact, it all turned out to be, um, you know, something less serious. I was sick. I needed rest in hospital. I needed treatment, but it wasn't nearly as bad as I had feared. And it all just turned out to be part of a really great adventure, generally, that I had in Japan. You know, sometimes... It's the, 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 the bad experiences mixed with the good ones that make something really exciting and interesting and, and it helps you develop as a person and it's all part of the rich tapestry of life, isn't it? So, um, you know, and that was just one experience I had during the two years that I spent in Japan in 2002 and 2003. Um, and so to, to hear the, uh, the whole story of that, then you can listen to episode 118 um, it also explains a lot of the reasons that I, I went to live in Japan in the first place and what happened to me while I was there. Not just that sort of hospital experience, but, you know, ch- lots of other experiences too, especially the difficulties, even though the, the majority of my experiences in Japan when I went there for the first time were really, really great and, and fantastic. OK, so anyway, that's episode 118, which you could listen to if you want more, you know, stories of the first time I visited. But then last week, then uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to go back. And um, so that's what I'm going to talk to you about here. Um, And so essentially, I'm going to I'm going to try and answer these questions over the course of this episode or episodes. First question is, why did you go? Why did you go to Japan? And that I guess that should be obvious, but I'm going to uh, answer that question. um, Because some of you might be wondering why I didn't go to to, you know, your country, for example. Um, secondly, I'm going to try and deal with the question of what it's really like in Japan. What's it really like there? And so let's explore the culture, the people, the way of life, the mentality, the lifestyle, and all that kind of thing. And thirdly, um, I'm going to deal with the questions of basically what did I do? So what did you do? Where did you go? And what did you see? So I'll be dealing with that. Um, And then also um, the question of uh, the comedy gig that I did there, because um, I mentioned on the podcast recently that I was doing uh, a stand-up comedy show and I invited uh, uh, listeners to this podcast to to come and attend the show. So what was the gig like, uh, you might be thinking? What about that comedy gig, Luke? Tell us about the comedy show that you did. How was it? Well, I will be telling you about that as well. Okay, so, um, (coughs) excuse me. Let's start at the start then. So why did I go to Japan? Now, you might be thinking, uh, Luke, why didn't you come to my country, Luke? My country's a wonderful place with many fantastic things to offer. Come, come to our country, drink our favourite drinks, eat our national dishes. Let me sing you the song of my people, you might be thinking. Well, I would love to visit everywhere all the time, of course. 
but on this occasion, it was Japan, um, a place where I used to live and which I've always wanted to return to for my own personal reasons, basically. Um, and, you know, I just have a connection to the place. Um, I do. I've, I've, I have a connection to the place. And I've always been meaning to return. It's always been like this thing that I wanted to do. I spent two years of my life there. Uh, I made, you know, some very strong friendships and became attached to some specific places and things. Um, it was very hard to break away from Japan uh, when I left uh sort of uh, at the end of 2003 it was actually quite uh, difficult to leave in a sense I mean I knew that I wanted to leave I knew I, I, I needed to come back to uh, my country for various reasons but you know two years there and I'd gone through a lot of experiences and things and I was very attached to the place and the people so it was quite you know quite difficult to leave um, that was quite an important period for me and I you know as a result I still have this kind of weird connection with Japan. Uh, when I originally left uh, when I originally left Japan, I thought that I would never go back. You know, I remember looking around at the places that I used to go in the sort of couple of weeks before I left. I remember sort of wandering around and I think to myself, I may never come here again. I might never see these places again. I might never meet these people again. I thought that I would never go back and that's actually quite a strange feeling. You know, just if you think about the places that mean a lot to you, the places where, because, you know, like you do get attached to these places, your heart sort of gets fond of, of places that you uh, go to, especially when you have like kind of emotional experiences there and you feel like you, 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 you kind of grow as a person and all that stuff. Um, so uh, it's a strange feeling to, to believe that you're never going to see those places again. Um, now, when I first went to Japan, I was in a bit of a strange place in my life. I'd finished university, but I didn't know what to do with myself. And to be honest, I was feeling a bit depressed. You know, I, was, I felt a little bit lost. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know where I was in my head. And, um, I, you know, I had no confidence at all. I was not in a very good uh, place, basically. Um, and so then I went to Japan as part of an... I just thought to myself, I want to have an adventure. I want to go away. I want to see the world. I want to see things and have experiences uh, so that when I'm older, I don't look back on this time and, and sort of regret things and think, well, I, I wish that I'd taken opportunities to go and see things and have experiences. Um, and I chose Japan because it was so far away. I thought, I want to go somewhere really far from here, uh, from the you know, the existence in England that I was having. I thought, I want to go miles away and have a totally different experience in a totally different place. Um, and that is what I had, even though at the beginning I, was, I, was, uh, I wasn't sure. Um, I felt a little bit out of my depth when I first arrived. And I, I remember thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I can't believe I've come over here to the other side of the world. This is a huge mistake. I should be focusing on my career in England. So there were lots of lots of doubt and panic and stuff like that. But uh, over the two years that I spent there, I did actually essentially achieve what I wanted to achieve, which is to, you know, grow and, and sort of and find myself, man, you know. I mean, that's a cheesy thing to say to go and find yourself. But, you know, sometimes it, it helps to have these experiences because you do sort of learn a few things about yourself and you develop your confidence. And when I returned to England, I felt much more confident and much more positive 
in many areas, including like my work. I felt a lot more confident about my career. I felt like I could uh, I could teach English and I, I felt like I was fairly good at it and I knew what I was doing. Um, and also just how to live, you know, how to, how to look after yourself, how to connect to people, uh, and even things like how to perform. And, um, when I arrived in Japan first, I had, I had the feeling that there wasn't much I could do. I just felt negative. Everything was negative and a bit difficult. But then when I left, I felt like I could do whatever I wanted. So my experience there really lifted me up. And also I learned about the, the kindness of people. I learned about the extraordinary differences that you can have between people in different places. But I also learned how people are basically the same even from totally different cultures, people are basically the same, you know, they're just moved by the same things. Um, and, um, you know, I, I learned how to relax and look after myself in the middle of chaotic stress. Uh, and it was a good time and a good place where things changed for me a little bit. So naturally, I have a soft spot uh, for Japan. And now it's 15 years later, and I'm married. And my wife, my French wife loves Japanese things. We often eat Japanese food and, you know, all the sort of Japanese things that we come into contact with, she really loves. She loves the decorations, the style, the, you know, the the interior design and things like that. Um, and she loves traveling and traveling is really important for her because, you know, she, again, just like me, she wants to do things and see things before she gets older. And so she loves Japanese things, she loves traveling, and I love her. So I wanted to show her this important place to me. And uh, so that whole thing was actually very important to me and important to us. And also, um, it's part of my 40th birthday that my, my wife wanted us to celebrate. She wanted uh, uh, to kind of, um, she wanted us to have a, a really nice experience for my 40th birthday. And also, it's our, wed our second wedding, wedding anniversary. So the whole thing was a, a special occasion, basically, for the, for the two of us. Uh, so I think you understand why um, it was important and sort of meaningful for us to go to, to Japan and see the place. Um, and uh, so uh, next, next question is, what's it like in Japan? So that's a very difficult question to deal with, really. Like, what is Japan really like? What are the people really like? What happens there and what goes on? Well... Um, this is stuff that I've been thinking about while I was there and since I came back and it sort of made me remember lots of things that I realized when I was living in Japan in the in the in the first place um, so uh, in no particular order here are some reflections on the culture the lifestyle the psychology and the general feeling of life in Japan especially in Tokyo which is where the sort of general area that I used to live in in fact I used to live in um, the Shonan Beach area, uh, not far from Enoshima Island, in a town called Tsujido, which is not far from Fujisawa City, which is not far from Yokohama City, um, which is about 45 minutes away from Tokyo. And in fact, um, Tokyo, or Greater Tokyo, is actually a huge metropolis. It's a massive city, basically. It's not just Tokyo itself. But in fact, the city spreads out and encompasses a number of other cities in the area. And if you go towards where I used to live, you get Tokyo, you get Kawasaki City, Yokohama City, Fujisawa City, 
um, and then places like Kamakura uh, on the coast. And if you keep going along the coast, you get to places like uh, uh, Enoshima and Tsujido and Chigasaki. And that's the area that I used to live in. And in fact, essentially, it's all it's a bit like one big city because it's all one urban sprawl all the way from the center of Tokyo, all the way out to where I used to live. It's basically urban and built up uh, with, you know, tall buildings. And it's it's incredibly developed. Um, certainly when I lived there, and even more nowadays. Um, so um, Tokyo is really the, the place I know the best. But we did go to Kyoto and spend a little bit of time there as well. So I guess that um, the, the first thing is that it's crowded. It's it's very crowded. It's, it's an extremely busy and crowded place. Um, the population of Japan is about 130 million people. 130 million, which is more than double the number of people in the UK. Uh, Japan is, is basically slightly bigger than the UK, but it's got more than double the population of the UK, which gives you an idea of just how crowded it is. Uh, it's more than double the population of France. Um, and um, 130 million is just under the number of people in Russia. Okay, now you know. Just consider the the relative space. Consider the size of Russia, the land mass, and Japan has only got a, a slightly fewer people living in it than than Russia. So it's incredibly crowded. Greater Tokyo, that metropolis that I described just a moment ago, um, that has about forty million people living in it. About forty. 40 million people living in the greater Tokyo area, which makes it the most populated city metropolis in the world. Um, I mean, that is an incredible number of people living fairly close to each other. Um, Insanely crowded, really, but they make it work somehow. Despite this large number of people crammed into a, a relatively small area, they do make it work. The place functions really quite efficiently and there's not a lot of space but it's amazing how interiors are designed to make the most of the space that they have. Uh, apartments tend to be very small. Some Japanese people living in Tokyo in particular live in tiny little apartments. I remember the apartment that I used to live in uh, when I was there. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was really small. And in fact, the, the, the kitchen, uh, the dining room, the living room were all squeezed into one room. And you could literally, you know, like if, if I had guests over at my apartment, I could give them a tour of the room and it would just be like literally stand in the middle of the room and turn in a circle. You've got, oh, there's the kitchen, there's the dining room, there's the living room, and there's the toilet. You know, it's like literally just, you can see everything from the, from standing in the middle of the apartments. Tiny places. But it's very clever the way that they sort of make these places work because they often... Uh, Japanese apartments, uh, you know, they, they save the space very effectively. It's it's really cool, actually. And you get, like, lots of mini things, miniature things, like small ironing boards and uh, little tables and chairs, tiny little sofas and stuff like that. Everything's got a very neat and, and, and well-contained. And basically, everyone manages to kind of keep everything very peaceful, clean and tidy. It's very neat and tidy place and uh, it's also an extremely convenient place the sort of place where you know everything you need really is usually just just sort of uh, a few minutes away from you most of the time everywhere you go there are vending machines that sell you tea and drinks and coffee and like vitamin drinks and even beer in some cases you can buy beer from vending machines which is 
amazing, of course. Um, so it's an extremely convenient place uh, and very peaceful, neat and tidy place as well. There are these convenience stores and uh, certainly in Tokyo, you're never more than about 200 meters from a convenience store. And these these are like kind of little compact supermarkets that sell pretty much everything you need. Pretty much. I mean, they, they most of them have like a little stationary area where you can buy all your pens and pads and, and stuff like that. Some of them have uh, like underwear so you can buy, uh, you know, a fresh, clean pair of underpants if you need it. Uh, some of them sell shirts for work and ties. So if you need a fresh shirt, you can just go to the convenience store. You can buy your lunch there. You can buy magazines and things. Um, uh, all sorts of stuff can be got in the convenience store. So, you know, it's an extremely convenient uh, uh, and tidy place. Um, in going back to the geography, one of the reasons why um, sort of people live in these big cities so much, that the population is squeezed into these urban areas, one of the reasons for that is actually that Japan is, is about 70, 70% mountain. Like 70% of... Um, of Japan is is basically mountains. It's a very mountainous place, and you know that's because Japan sits on um, various uh, fault lines. You know, like tectonic fault lines, uh, where uh, I guess like these big tectonic plates meet. You know, these uh, uh, the Earth is basically made up of these big plates of rock on the surface of the Earth, and uh, where those uh, plates meet, you have these sort of um, uh, fault lines and those fault lines actually you know they rub up against each other as the tectonic plates move and this is what causes earthquakes and also volcanoes as well uh, you know these cracks in the earth's surface where the molten lava comes uh, through uh, and uh, so this is what causes you know mountains essentially it kind of pushes you know mountains up because of the volcanic uh, uh, landscape um so it's 70% mountain, and also there are various places where you can find hot springs, you know, these natural warm water springs, uh, and, um, and also famously uh, Mount Fuji, which is a, a huge and majestic uh, volcano. Um, and yeah, so the place is 70% mountain. So a lot of people are crammed into the city areas where essentially it's a lot more practical to build, uh, you know, buildings. Um, also, the country, uh, as I just said, it sits on a uh, whole series of fault lines, um, which means that there are regular earthquakes. Um, uh, in fact, something in the region of more than 1,000 earthquakes in a year. Although I've read various um, figures on this. Uh, I read one thing that said that uh, there are more than 1,000 earthquakes in a year, and another thing that said there's more than 10,000 earthquakes in a year. Um, but, um, I mean, certainly, you know, when you live there, you do notice earthquakes from time to time. And in fact, they get sort of a bit, you, you get used to it really after a while. Um, I didn't experience one when I was there, but my wife did, uh, cause I was asleep. You see, I think it was like in the middle of the night or in the early morning or something that, you know, uh, apparently the, the hotel room was shaking and, uh, you know, the bed was shaking and stuff, a fairly gentle little earthquake, but she certainly felt one. I just slept through it because, um, <clears throat> in fact, earthquakes can be quite sort of gentle, especially when you're in bed. It's like someone's rocking the bed. It's like, oh, that's quite nice, actually. Someone's just rocking me to sleep. Um, in fact, when I, when I used to live in Japan and I used to sometimes wake up 
because there was an earthquake happening. You'd wake up and you just hear things shaking and the bed's rocking a little bit. Uh, and I'd like wake up like, what's that? Oh, oh, it's an earthquake. Oh, never mind. Just roll over and go back to sleep again. You get a little bit used to it, a little bit blasé. I mean, those are the little ones. There are bigger earthquakes, which are uh, a lot more unsettling. But anyway, um, <clears throat> regular earthquakes in Japan, not all of them are noticeable, but many of them are. And some of them are really kind of frightening, to be honest. Um, as I said, Mount Fuji is the biggest mountain in the country, and it looms in the distance. Um, it's sometimes visible from Tokyo, depending on the weather, and it's much more visible from areas in Kanagawa Prefecture, where sometimes you can see Mount Fuji from the beach. If you go down to the beach, you can see it sort of in the distance, or you can you can get glimpses of Mount Fuji uh, when you're travelling on the train. Um <clears throat> especially in winter when the air is clear and the mountain is covered in snow and it really is a spectacular and beautiful sight this symmetrical powerful peaceful and majestic uh, mountain uh, it's also an active volcano in fact which does make it seem a little threatening and quite powerful um, and basically you know with mount fuji it demands your respect essentially when you look at it i mean it is so um such a powerful image, this bold, symmetrical form in the distance. I mean, it really is something. And, and I think, you know, I can't help thinking that it somehow contributes to the mentality or the spirit or the feeling uh, that you get in Japan, that there is this, essentially this incredible natural work of art on the skyline, uh, not always visible, but sometimes you see it and it's, it's very striking and, uh, and and incredible. And yes, it is an active volcano, which does make it seem a little threatening too. And if it erupted one day, it would be pretty devastating. Now, that's not something that people talk about all the time, the possibility of Mount Fuji erupting or there being like a big and, and destructive earthquake or something. Um, but um, uh, I mean... When I lived there and when I was there on holiday, it was always something that was in the back of my mind of like, you know, what happens if a big earthquake occurs or what would happen if Mount Fuji just erupted? Um, I mean, I just Googled it, right? Uh, what would happen if Mount Fuji erupted? And I found this article on um, Quartz, um, this website. And uh, so here's, here's basically some commentary on the subject of Mount Fuji and what would happen if it erupted. Um, so it goes like, this is written by Lily Kuo in uh, Quartz uh, 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 Media, uh, Quartz.com. And it goes like this, Japan's Mount Fuji is at risk of erupting, according to a new study analysing the tectonic effects of, a, of the deadly earthquake that struck off the coast of Japan in 2011. An eruption could threaten the lives of over 8 million people in Tokyo and nearby areas, as well as destroy roads and railways connecting some of Japan's most populous cities. What's uh, Using what's called seismic noise, so seismic is the word that relates to like the movement of uh, the tectonic plates, the movement under the ground, using what's called seismic noise to create a kind of ultrasound image of disturbances in the Earth's crust. French and Japanese researchers found that the area where uh, perturbations were the greatest after the 2011 Tohoku 
Oki earthquake uh, was under Mount Fuji, increasing pressure on a volcanic region that hasn't erupted since 1707. That eruption was most likely caused by an 8.7 magnitude earthquake that struck near Osaka 49 days later. So the point here is that, um, that you know, uh, Fuji is at potential risk of eruption if uh, there was a big earthquake in the area. Um, and, well, I mean, when you, when you kind of go quite close to it and you see the size of it and you realise the potential for it, I mean, it, wow. That would be a story, let me tell you. That would be a story if that ever did erupt. But anyway, you know, I guess people living in Japan, it's not something you can think about on a daily basis. But it, you know, like I said, I think it does somehow. It must contribute to the mindset or the atmosphere of the place that you know that there are these powerful forces that you're living on top of, essentially. I'll talk more about that in a moment because... Um, um, you know, that that's something that I'm going to come back to um, when I talk about uh, probably earthquakes and nature as well. Just the, the sort of the presence of nature in Japanese life and also Godzilla as well. I'll talk about Godzilla a little bit, too. And I think it does relate to this kind of stuff, weirdly. So, um, yeah, like I said, I'm sure that these things have an effect on life in Japan, but it's kind of below the surface. I don't know, actually, if Japanese people really think about these things a lot or whether it bothers them uh, when they're on their own or something. I, I don't really know. But there is always this feeling in the back of your mind of, you know, the big one could come at any time. Perhaps that does contribute to the uniqueness, the energy and the weird sort of zen-like calm feeling that you have in, in the place. Um so moving on, as I said, in no particular order, these are just some thoughts that I wrote down. Um, another thing is is the, the subject of queuing and other forms of social order. So, um, you know, like I said, uh, uh, Japan's a very crowded place, but everything's kind of seems to work very smoothly. There's a lot of order and people sort of seem to think of each other. They're, they're quite thoughtful of everyone else and that sort of manifests itself in the way that for example people queue up in public uh, or the way that people sort of um, you know uh, behave in public now coming from France where public moments of conflict are very common in in France people you know they people bump into each other and people sort of rub each other up the wrong way um, you see it regularly on public transport when the metro is crowded um, you know, people, uh, you know, they get annoyed and, and you see these little arguments. And uh, I mean, it's 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 amazing, really, that Paris is a very crowded city, but people walk around like, you know, they they they're the only ones on the pavement. Uh, I don't know quite how it works, but um, it's just the way it happens in this city. People walk around and they bump into each other and they're like, oh, you know, like, you know, everyone's kind of seems to get uh uh, into these conflicts and it's just life in France life in Paris uh, but but in contrast Japan seems incredibly orderly considering the number of people living in quite a small space and I suppose this comes from necessity uh, the fact that people need to be able to get along with uh, with each other in order for the whole system to work because if people uh you know argued with each other or whatever then you know it would just be a nightmare the whole system wouldn't work at all um, and generally, I, I find that people respect each other's personal space. There's a lot of effort made to maintain the kind of collective good or the common good 
which is like this concept. I'm sure there's a Japanese word for it. This idea of the kind of collective uh, good and that everyone is has a responsibility to maintain it. And you see that in various ways. You know, it's it's almost like a a sort of subconscious duty to make sure that you do your bit, that you contribute to the collective uh, space in the right way. So that means that you don't drop litter. You don't make a lot of loud noise when you're in public. You don't take up too much space, that you're respectful to those people around you. And there is a real sense of kind of collective consciousness in Japan. Now, uh, by contrast, in the UK, I remember coming back from Japan, coming back to the UK, and really noticing the difference between British culture and Japanese culture. Two years away from my country, in a different place, really sort of uh, ex- really sort of uh, revealed to me certain things about my culture. I remember coming back from Japan, feeling that everybody in the UK seemed so individualistic and kind of egocentric. People sort of talked about themselves a lot more than they do in Japan. You know, I've I just got the sense that people were a lot more individually focused and egocentric. Uh, also, I was surprised by the way that some of my friends in the UK behaved in, in a fairly antisocial way, S- certainly sort of from the point of view of, of a Japanese person. You know, like speaking loudly in public places. Uh, I'd, I'd noticed my friends... Uh, you know, doing things that I hadn't really noticed before, like, you know, speaking loudly or dropping cigarette butts outside doorways, things like that. Um, People in the UK also seemed to do a lot of talking about themselves, as I said. In Japan, that those things seem to happen less. And as far as I can tell, it seems to be a little bit distasteful um, to talk about yourself too much. Um, now, those are just observations that I've had. I might be wrong about that. In fact, I might be wrong about many of the, the, the things I've noticed or think that I've noticed. Uh, so please correct me if I am wrong about any of these assessments of, of Japanese culture. But I feel like Japan has more of a sense of collective consciousness and a kind of collective duty and less individualism, or at least people sort of express less individualism uh, when they're with each other. Um, now, that's not to say that obviously people... I don't mean that people in Japan aren't individuals. Of course they are. You know, everyone in Japan is an individual with their own unique personality and everything. But it's just that people seem to pay more attention to things that will be good for everyone. Or And, and, and as a result, the place comes across as being efficient, clean, tidy and peaceful. Um, now, uh, the next point on my list, and as, as I said, this is really kind of a random list. Mm a random list of, of sort of like things that I've, I've noticed. Uh, the next point on the list is just the concept of the charisma man. Um, have you ever heard of that, a charisma man? I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before. Um, and I thought that I would talk about this in this episode. And I'll talk about it now, since I'm on the subject of some differences between Japan and, let's say, Western culture, right? Since I'm talking about those differences. What about the charisma man? Now, there is this concept, this idea of the charisma man, which actually uh, used to be a comic strip. It used to be a comic strip that was popular in the expat community in Japan. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of quite an interesting concept and a little bit controversial. But I think it does tell us something about the way 
Western people, especially men, can be treated in Japan, or at least it tells us something about one phenomenon which can occur, not necessarily every, with everyone every time. Uh, but that's just the concept of the charisma man. So what is the charisma man? Essentially, this is um, uh, this is the idea that sometimes when Western men go to Japan, they get treated a little bit differently and that this then affects their self-perception and starts to change their behavior a little bit. And essentially, uh, this is really about Guys who, let's say, in England or other Western countries, who in England, let's say, they're not that special. You know, they're not particularly interesting, not particularly charismatic or charming or um, or popular with the opposite sex. You know, the, these ordinary, geeky, sort of nerdy guys. And they, they go to Japan and somehow, because of the cultural differences and because of the sort of filter uh, that uh, some Japanese people can can look through when they see a western person somehow when this geeky nerdy guy arrives in japan he becomes pow he becomes charisma man and charisma man is this suddenly this uh, this dazzling charismatic attractive um uh, uh sort of alpha male kind of guy um and the thing is that like uh you, you, you sometimes see these charisma men. Like, you might see a Western guy with a Japanese girl on a date and she's, like, listening to everything he says and she's, like, sort of acting subservient to him and he feels like he's the dominant big man and, the, you know, with this, this glowing personality. Um, and yet when he meets uh, Western women, um, you know, Western women are like the, the kryptonite for Charisma Man, and Charisma Man loses all his powers when he meets Western women. That's the kind of idea that was expressed in this comic strip in a newspaper uh, that uh, is quite popular with uh, expats uh, in in Japan. And it's kind of interesting just to sort of see this as a uh, a little case study of cultural differences um, between uh, Western people and Japanese people. And, and I said it's a bit controversial because... Um, some people disagree with it. Some people say that it's not fair on Japanese women, that it, it's actually a little bit sort of almost sort of unfair. Yeah, unfair on Japanese women, suggesting that Japanese women have got uh, like no uh, sense of judgment when it comes to Western men and things like that. But anyway, um, uh, this is what it says in Wikipedia about uh, the concept of the charisma man. It says, um, Charisma Man manipulates the superhero genre to ridicule the often unjustified self-confidence of some foreign men in Japan. Although something of a loser in his home country of Canada, the home of Charisma Man's creator, uh, when around Japanese people, the central character uh, of Charisma Man transforms from a skinny nerd into a muscle-bound hunk, extremely attractive to women and admired by men. Like other superheroes, however, Charisma Man has one major weakness, Western woman. Whenever in the presence of Western females, his powers disappear and he becomes an unattractive skinny wimp once more. Charisma Man is thus a statement on the relationships between Japanese and non-Japanese people in Japan. According to Rodney, uh, who I guess is the person who created Charisma Man, 
the Japanese seemed to see Westerners through some kind of filter. An obvious example was all the geeks that I saw out there walking around with beautiful Japanese girls on their arms. These guys were probably social misfits in their home countries, but in Japan, the geek factor didn't seem to translate. The dichotomy between the perception of these guys in their home countries and in Japan was amazing to me. And this made me think of Superman. On his home planet of Krypton, Superman was nobody special. And he certainly didn't have superpowers. But when he arrived on Earth, well, you know the rest. He was somebody. And that was the whole premise of the first comic strip. Uh, that was Larry Rodney, I guess the creator of Charisma Man, in a 2003 interview with the Japan Times. So uh, what about this Charisma Man thing? And is it true? Is it real? And what does it sort of reveal about, uh, um, you know, uh, Westerners in Japan? Well, I still see Charisma Men in Japan quite a lot. I mean, I, you know, I still see that phenomenon um, imagine some Western guy who's acting a bit arrogant and self-important when really, you know, uh, he's not that great. Um, you know, that's that's what we're talking about. Uh, the inflated ego of a Western man getting attention from Japanese women, essentially. Now, partly it's a bit unfair to Japanese women. That's what some people say. But, you know, really, it kind of shows two things. One thing is that um, there is a certain filter through which some Japanese people will view Western men, for example, that they they see them as uh, somehow more impressive or charismatic than they really are. Or maybe it's just that Japanese people are being polite because, you know, Western people are different. And so maybe, you know, for, for Japanese people, they, they, they're just sort of being extra polite to uh, these these visitors. Uh, but the other thing is is the way that some Western guys react to the attention that they get in Japan. Some blokes just let it go straight to their heads and they end up sort of being tiresome, eco egomaniac, would-be alpha males who let all the adulation go to their heads. And this is probably why they're not that popular in their own countries because they're just not that nice or charming. And it becomes more obvious in Japan when you see the way these guys become smug, arrogant, self-important guys with an inflated sense of ego. But, you know, saying these things now, I feel like I'm, I'm being a little unfair. And maybe the point is that it doesn't really matter that if in your own country, if you're, if people don't see the good qualities that you have, and then you go to Japan or another place and, you know, in that different context, you're seen as a lot more interesting. Then, you know, what's wrong with that? Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. What do you think? Um, it's just interesting to note the way in which people's perception of themselves and each other can change depending on the cultural context. On one hand, this is a kind of a bad thing. But on the other hand, it's kind of what makes Japan so special because people do treat you well. It's really nice to have people show interest in you and to be genuinely, uh, genuinely impressed by where you come from and to be impressed by the differences. For example, when uh, you know we met people last week um, and we told them that we were from Paris and London, that I'm, you know, I'm from London and she's from Paris and that we're married. This seemed to be sort of impressive information. People seemed to be charmed and impressed by that. It's like, oh, wow, like a, a couple, like a French-English couple. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so I th actually think it's quite nice the way that Western people get treated in, in Japan. It's lovely, really. And to be honest, I'd rather have that kind of nice treatment than to be met with indifference. I mean, it just wouldn't be charming if people didn't care about you or they were rude to you. 
So it's nice that Japanese people are welcoming and interested in you. Even if it is even slightly fake, which I'm not sure if it I'm not sure if it's fake, you know, the the way Japanese people can sometimes be impressed by western people they meet. I don't know if that's fake or if it's genuine. It's hard to tell. I in fact to be honest, I think that people are genuinely curious and interested in meeting western people or people who are different. It feels a little fake or does it? I'm not sure. To be honest, whether it's fake or not, it's better than genuine rudeness, you know? So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's lovely to be considered as slightly special because you're different, but that can go to some people's heads and make them act a bit arrogant. Like, I'm brilliant, you know, look at the attention I'm getting, I'm amazing. Um, and it, it can also get a little bit tiring after a while when you just want to be considered as a normal person like everyone else, you know? And I remember that I used to get a little bit fed up with people immediately being sort of complimentary and very impressed by me when they first met me, even though they didn't know anything about me. Like people's first response would be like, oh, wow, you're so cool. You're from England. And I'd be like, I'm not cool, really. I don't feel very cool. You know, I'm a bit of a I can be a bit of a twat, really. You know, like I'd meet some people and they'd be like, oh, where are you from? And I'd say, I'm from London. And they'd be like, oh, wow, you're such a cool guy. You're a gentleman. And I think, well, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really that much of a gentleman. I'm just a bloke. I'm not, I'm just a normal guy, not that much of a gentleman. So, you know, anyway, in the UK, we tend to be a little bit sort of cautious and wary of like big compliments when you first meet someone. And in fact, really, when you get to know a person, you tend to just sort of take the piss out of them. That's how we express our affection for each other it's a bit weird maybe but we make fun of each other and and we don't we we, we don't make those earnest statements of like telling people how great they are we tend to just be like yeah you're all right aren't you yeah you're all right i suppose you know and we make fun of each other um and and we often will make fun of people even when we first meet them you know we just sort of take the piss out of them a little bit and it's just a form of bonding and friendship building i suppose it's just you know some cultural difference there between uh, Japan and uh, the UK. But that, that whole point about Charisma Man was just like this phenomenon of the way in which Western people can be treated a little differently and how that can sort of um, uh, change people's behaviour and stuff. I find it interesting. Uh, if you are a Japanese person listening to this or if you, you're a person with any experience of this, then please do uh, leave your comments in the comments section. I'd love to know uh, what your thoughts are about anything I'm talking about. I don't profess to be an expert or anything. I'm just sort of uh, sharing my thoughts and feelings. Um, so let's go back to that uh, idea of the quietness and the Zen feeling that you have in Japan. Japan is officially a peaceful country. Uh, that's after World War Two. Uh, various conventions were signed, which basically um, put into into law that Japan would be officially a peaceful country. Japan officially doesn't have an army; it has a self-defense force. And so, you know, since World War Two, Japan has officially been a peaceful country. But it's more than that. Um, the place, like, just on a on a moment by moment basis, the place can be incredibly peaceful and atmospheric. And I'm not sure where this comes from. This is that kind of zen-like quietness that I mentioned before. It's like, it really is zen, you know? Um, a sort of weird meditative peacefulness that seems to pervade everything. Even when you're in an extremely crowded and uh, busy place, 
there's still this undercurrent of like zen calmness it's really really amazing and it, i think it comes from the way in which like uh people uh, uh approach shared spaces that people try not to uh impinge on other people's experience people try to keep things neat and tidy everyone feels like they've got a responsibility to look after the environment and the general shared space and it does contribute to a a relaxing peaceful sort of vibe it's lovely it really is um service that you get service in shops and service in restaurants um is the service is excellent now um in in British culture, we say the customer is king. Okay, the customer is king. But in in Japanese culture, they say the customer is god. So that kind of shows you the level of respect that they have for their customers. And it you know it's evident in the customer service you get. It is extremely polite. It's very attentive, um, and generally everything is of very high quality. And you're looked after very well. Um, it can be a little extreme. Sometimes I find the service to be a little bit robotic at times. Uh, and like people can be a, quite impersonal. Uh, the sort of service you get is just a little robotic and impersonal. I mean, like if you compare it to America, for example, where the customer service you get there is very personal. It's like, hi, how are you doing today? You know, how are you? Are you having a nice day? You know, let me get that for you. Okay, right, great. You're all set. Have a great day now. My name's, you know, my name's Dan. I'm going to be your personal shopper today. If you need anything, I'll, you know, I'm over here. Uh, it's a very personal kind of thing. Whereas in Japan, it's very much kind of impersonal, very polite, uh, which is extremely helpful, but can feel a bit robotic. And, you know, you see that in various ways, like the the, the way that um, uh, staff uh, will kind of repeat these kinds of these these formal polite lines of uh, customer relations dialogue and I mean you get the sense sometimes that some of the staff could be like replaced by robots they're kind of it's a very robotic kind of system I remember we were in one place where we bought coffee and the girl preparing the coffee, I mean, I, I made a, I made a, I made sort of fun of her with my Japanese friend, and you know, I called her, I called her like Coffee Bot Three Thousand, and we, to be honest, we couldn't stop laughing. It was very childish, but I mean, I think there's something in that 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 it, it is quite robotic service, which is fine, you know, it's just different. Um, I mean, like other examples of this would be that uh, that there is a certain kind of uh, a woman's voice that you hear everywhere. And you hear it from machines, you hear it from announcements in the train station, you hear it on the bus, uh, you hear it from like vending machines and things. It's a kind of like a, a high-pitched uh, woman's voice. I can't do an impression of it, um, uh, but um, anyway, that I mean, it's just it's just like this weird kind of this high-pitched woman's voice, which seems to be the same. And like when women are, are giving service, they adopt this kind of high-pitched service voice. It's, it. I mean, it's great. It's very helpful, but it also is a bit odd for me. Um, you know, coming from a, a place where service is 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 more sort of personal, and people you know do speak in their normal voice. Over there in Japan, there is like a, a definite sort of manner of service, uh, which uh, seems a bit robotic. In fact, um, saying that. Uh, in the airport, uh, coming back uh, home at the end of the holiday, uh, we were in the airport queuing up, waiting to check in our bags. Uh, 
And my wife needed help with something. She wanted to get some help for the the duty-free shopping that we'd done uh, because we had all these duty-free shopping receipts. So she wanted to get some information. She wanted to speak to someone. And so uh, there was an information desk on the other side of the airport and um, there was a girl sitting behind the counter at the information desk. And so my wife was like, can you just wait here with the bags? I'm going to go and speak to the girl on the information desk. She went over, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, girl on the information desk, fine. She went over to talk to her. And she immediately came back and she said to me, she's not a real girl. She's a robot. And she w- it genuinely was a, like a robot girl sitting behind the counter. Like this sort of plastic girl uh, robotically moving her head from left to right sometimes, nodding her head, blinking. It was really weird, totally freaky. And she was like, I don't know, she was saying something in Japanese, like, welcome to the airport or something. But there she was sitting behind the desk, looked like a lifelike person. But when you got close to her, you realised, oh my God, it's like a plastic robot. Oh, that's so weird. And I've heard that like robots are actually quite popular in Japan. And uh, various types of robot are being invented, uh, which include artificial intelligence. And these robots are uh, are being sort of developed to be companions for people. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's just really kind of weird for me. Uh, I took a video of me talking to the, the, the service bot 3000 in the airport. So you can see that video on the page for this episode. It's quite weird. And from a distance, the girl looked like a normal girl. But when you got up close to her, it's like, oh, oh my God, it's a robot. That's so weird. Um, so robots, basically. Um, cleanliness. I mean, I've talked about it. Cleanliness is an, it's an extremely clean place. You could eat your dinner off the floor. You know, it feels like that. You couldn't really eat your dinner off the floor. But it feels like you could. Like, for example, the floor in the metro is shiny and pristine. It's reflective. You can almost see your reflection in the floor of the metro. I mean, compare that to Paris, the metro in Paris, in comparison to the uh, the, the Tokyo uh, subway is really disgusting. And like some of the metro trains here in Paris are covered in kind of grime. It's like disgusting. It, you know, you could grow things in the the dirt that collects under the seats in the Jap- in the uh, uh, Paris metro. It's really filthy. But the Japanese metro is spotless. It's amazing. Um, also, there are many indoor places, indoor areas where you have to remove your shoes. A lot of restaurants, for example, ask you to remove your shoes. Uh, when you go into someone's house, you have to remove your shoes. And this is an excellent idea, in my opinion. I think it's really great uh, to to have that because it's um it means that those places where people aren't wearing their shoes become really really clean and it also means that you know people are sort of sitting on the floor and lounging around on the floor in their socks and everywhere becomes like this kind of really clean place it's like a big living area basically where you can sit on the floor and it's you know you know it's not going to be too dirty um and you know, after a while of being in Japan, when you come back to the West and people are wearing their shoes indoors, like wearing their shoes on the carpet, these are uh, these these shoes that people have been walking around in the street uh, wearing those shoes and, and they wear them indoors on the carpet. It's disgusting when you think about it. Um, so it makes total sense to me to take your shoes off when you go into the, your house and just the whole home should be a nice clean zone where you can kind of sit on the floor. 
and it's it's as clean as your sofa you know i think it's really great that's brilliant um one surprising thing um is that there are no litter bins anywhere you can never find any rubbish bins you just can't find them uh by the way a little bit of vocab here rubbish um litter uh trash and garbage okay let's deal with those words rubbish trash and garbage they all mean the same thing it's stuff that you don't want anymore stuff that you're throwing away okay now rubbish is british english and trash and garbage that's american english okay but they basically mean the same thing litter is stuff that gets thrown on the floor stuff that gets dropped on the floor so if you're walking around the streets you might see litter on the floor it's really really bad you know when people drop litter i hate littering i hate it when people drop litter on the floor uh that's why we have litter bins because that's where you're supposed to drop your stuff it's supposed to go in the litter bin not on the floor okay now in japan there's like no litter anywhere just no litter on the streets it's i mean sometimes you see little bits I have to say, little bits, but it's very rare to find litter on the streets. Even cigarette butts, you don't see many of them. I mean, in Paris, the streets are covered in cigarette butts because in Paris, smoking is like a sort of a... It's like an Olympic sport here in Paris, smoking. People are brilliant at smoking. They really are. They sit on the on the terrace smoking and they flick their cigarettes across the terrace, land them in the gutter of the street and the water washes them away. And, you know, that's life in Paris. A lot of people smoke and they flick their cigarettes on the floor. It's totally normal. Um, in Paris, though, um, uh, there is no litter on the streets and very few cigarette butts. And it's what's amazing is that there are really no bins anywhere. No litter bins. So I don't know where the rubbish goes. Where does it go? I honestly think that people just take their litter home and they dispose of it themselves at home. Um, Also, cigarette butts, people tap their ash on the floor, but sometimes people tap their ash into their own little portable ashtrays that they keep in their pockets. They, like... Like stand outside the building smoking, they tap the ash into the portable ashtray, um, and uh, when they finish smoking, they put the cigarette out and they put the cigarette butt into the ashtray and close it, and the ashtray goes in the pocket. So you know they're not throwing any litter on the floor, they're not making the place dirty, they keep it all tidy, and you know they basically take the uh, the cigarette butt somewhere else, and when they get the opportunity to throw it away, they do it. So it's amazing, you know, it's so clean and tidy. And, uh, you know, that's lovely. Um, um, In terms of aesthetics now, um, aesthetics, what do I mean by aesthetics? Um, Aesthetics just means like the... Uh, the kind of the the design of things um, the the beauty the way things look and and the general artistic taste and the design of the place uh, the aesthetics of Japan and you know Japan is a very aesthetic place Uh, we know that it's or you know many of us consider it to be a very futuristic place right you think of Japan you think of robots and the future and it's like a science fiction movie or something well um, even though I said that uh, you know there was that robot in the airport, actually Japan is not quite as robotic and futuristic as you might expect in terms of the level of technology or the general design of things. I mean, obviously it's a it's a very sort of well developed place. 
Uh, and to an extent, it's very futuristic. There is quite a lot of technology, and Japan is known for its technology companies. You know, often it's it's at the cutting edge of of design and and technology stuff like that. You know, there are the very famous uh, engineering and 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 uh, technology companies like Sony and Toshiba and Panasonic and Mitsubishi and stuff like that. Um, but also, Japan is actually um, a very sort of natural place. And there is a lot of natural forms, um, you know, a lot of wood and stone, um, you know, imperfect shapes uh, combined with the sort of symmetrical uh, lines that you expect with a, uh, uh, you, you, you know, you expect a certain amount of symmetry and order in a place that is known for producing technology. But actually, as well as that, there is a lot of natural form as well, imperfect lines, imperfect shapes patterns, textures, and surfaces which are imperfect and natural. For example, the texture of stone or the texture of wood or rough surfaces with sort of random natural patterns and textures. Um, You know, it's the the same kinds of pattern and texture that you find in nature, often combined together. So it's really like you get all these different surfaces, lines, and patterns, and textures of stone, of wood, of moss, water, things like that. And it's really these surfaces. I mean, things like, um, you know, like the design of a restaurant, you might get a wallpaper, which is like the rough, a rough patterned wallpaper with a lot of wood, maybe a stone tabletop um, with curved lines and things like that, combined with uh, uh, symmetrical wooden uh, doors and things like that, you know. Um, it's, it's you know, the same sorts of forms that you find in nature. Um, different textures next to each other with natural lines, shapes very neatly presented. Uh, it's extremely satisfying and peaceful and relaxing. Um, the effect of all of this, these natural lines and shapes and textures and things, it's, it just gives this kind of nice natural order, this combination of symmetry and no symmetry together creates something very beautiful and it's again it contributes to this zen-like peaceful atmosphere that you get there um uh another thing is the cherry blossom um many of my listeners when they my japanese listeners when they knew i was coming to japan in april a lot of people were telling me about the cherry blossom uh and asking whether i saw the cherry blossom and stuff like that well Cherry blossom is a, a very important thing in Japan. It's a it's a big moment in the in the year when the cherry blossom comes out because there are cherry trees everywhere, um, especially in certain spots, in certain kind of parks and little sightseeing spots. And when the blossom appears on the trees in early April, it really is a beautiful sight to see because um, you know it creates this beautiful delicate pink color everywhere it's a light pink almost white like between white and pink a beautiful delicate pink color and it looks like snow all over the branches of these trees and there are so many trees all with the same color and a few other little colors too like some dark purples and some violet uh, ones and white and stuff but the majority of them are this beautiful sort of candy floss colored pink and 
It really is amazing. It's like snow all over the trees. It contrasts beautifully with the blue sky when the when the, the sun is out. And also when the wind blows, the blossom falls from the trees and it sort of it, it falls down from the trees like snow and it lands on the ground and it carpets the ground in this pink blossom. The petals of the blossom carpet the ground and they, they create these carpets all over the rivers as well. You get these beautiful flowing rivers covered in uh, cherry blossom petals. Um, and the, the beautiful thing about cherry blossom is not just the way that it looks and the atmosphere that it creates, but also the fact that it's transient. You know, it doesn't last uh, forever. It, In fact, it only lasts for a few days, really. The cherry blossom comes out and like five or six days later, it's all gone. So it's transient. It's fleeting beauty, which somehow makes it even more special and even more beauty. It really is kind of like natural beauty of the highest order. Um, And, you know, it's a magical moment when you're in Japan during the cherry blossom uh, season, during that week, and the sun comes up and it really sort of floods this the, the place with a, a, a nice atmosphere. Um, and, you know, Japanese people love to celebrate the cherry blossom by having little picnics and parties in the park, in the cherry blossom areas, under the cherry blossom trees, and the blossom falls and you drink, you know, your beer or sake and you eat your food. And it really is lovely. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Uh, and the whole kind of country breathes this lovely sigh of relief. It's absolutely fantastic. And we did see lots and lots of cherry blossom. We were incredibly lucky because we arrived right at the uh, the correct moment, just when the cherry blossom was blooming. So we saw cherry blossom all week uh, from the beginning all the way to the end. So we were extremely lucky with that. I'll tell you more about that later. Um, now, Another thing, I've talked about the the quietness, I've talked about the tidiness and the cleanliness and stuff and the order. Um, Another feature of life in Japan is the cuteness. Everything is cute. It's all really cute. And there's a word for this in Japanese, which is kawaii. Kawaii, which means like cute, basically. Oh my God. And Japan is an incredibly cute place. Like cuteness rules it seems in japan like cuteness is the dominant ideology everything has to be cute and uh kawaii and you know uh one thing that always strikes me in japan is like the level of cuteness in everything in designs in uh products in just all the stuff that you see and also in the people as well the people are uh lovely cute fluffy sweet little people uh, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. Like spending time in Japan again, it really made me realise that this is fluffy bunny land. It really is. It's cute, fluffy bunny land. It's like Super Mario World. It's incredible. Uh, for example, everything has a cute logo. Everything uh, is anthropomorphized. Anthropomorphized, meaning um, everything is kind of given a cute little face. Everything's kind of. Uh, made into a human with like a little face or a smile even stuff that's not even a person even just inanimate objects are given a sm- a little smiley face or a cute little face like you know bread or chicken shops or cash machines um you know uh, safety rules like posters giving rules about safety everything's like given like a little cute face or a cute little cartoon character and also uh music as well there's Everything's got a cute little melody, you know, like constant little cute melodies. Like, for example, the music that plays 
when the green pedestrian light shines. You know, when you're crossing the street, when the street, when the lights go green, you go this little melody. That there's that melody, and the melody goes like that when it's nearly finished. And when the train is arriving in the station, you get this. It's like being in The Legend of Zelda or something. It really is. It's like being in Super Mario Land. Everything's got its own little jingle, its own little melody, constant little melodies. Uh, when the pedestrian light shines, when the bus door opens, when the bus stops, when you're at the cash machine, when you've entered your your pin number correctly, you get like a nice little melody. When the um, when the cash is delivered to you, you get like a nice concluding melody. Um, and in fact, even some streets uh, just play cute music from the lamp posts. Literally, there are speakers in the lamp posts playing cute music as you walk around. So it's like you're in like fluffy bunny fairyland in Super Mario World uh in like the Legend of Zelda or something. It's 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 amazing. It's super cute. Uh everyone has cute bags, little cute badges, pencil cases with cute logos. It's like Hello Kitty and Miffy and all these cute little things. Even the people are adorably cute. Um and I you know, I don't mean to be patronizing to you Japanese people, but you are you know, uh, lovely, cute little Ewok bunny people. Uh, you you are because you know Japanese people are quite small compared to me, and they tend to be sweet and they laugh and giggle easily, and they're quite self-contained and neat and tidy. Uh, they're quite easily scared as well. I mean, uh, Japanese people can be kind of a bit socially awkward and a bit shy which just makes them even more adorable. Like I remember once uh, when I was living in Japan, I needed help with my cash machine because I was trying to deposit some cash in a cash machine. Um, and so I, I, it was all in Japanese and I didn't know which button to press. So I, I got, went outside the bank and um, and like because I couldn't find anyone in the bank. So I went outside the bank and I was like, oh, sumimasen, you know, can you help me? And I got this company, this salary man who was walking down the streets and managed to get him into the, the bank. And I was like, uh, I don't understand. You know, I need to, I need your help. Can you help me? And he was like, ah, which basically means like, oh, I, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. And oh, this is really, really awkward for me. He was like, ah, basically, ah, means like, I'm really sorry, but no, I can't help you. Ah, eh. <laughs> And he was kind of doing this, like, ah, ah, which means like, I'm really sorry. It's like, like, no, no, just leave me alone. Like, don't talk to me. Ah, like that. In France, that would be like, uh, no, sorry, no, I can't help you. Um, whereas, you know, in Japan, it's like, ah, like that. And um, so I was like, oh, you know, it's okay. No, no, no problem. And then I noticed one of the members of staff in the bank. She came back and I, and I turned to her and I was like, oh, excuse me. And I turned back to the other guy and he like, all I could see was him just running out of the door. Like, literally, I just saw his legs disappearing out of the door. And I was like, oh, uh, thanks for your help. But he just ran away from me. You know, I think I scared him with my Englishness and my, oh, can you help me? Oh, and he's like, ah, no, no, sorry. Uh, I don't know what that is. I think that's like social awkwardness, you know. Uh, uh, but it's it's quite adorable. And... Uh, 
so you know that's another reason why Japanese people are cute and also uh, I find that uh, Japanese people often have kind of quite big fluffy hair and sort of round faces basically you're you're cute adorable people especially the children basically what I'm saying is Japanese people you're like cartoon characters to me okay you're like Ewoks or teddy bears or something I don't know if that's fair. What do you think? Is that fair? Is that rude of me to say that? I don't mean it to be rude. I don't mean to sound patronizing or anything. But, you know, Japanese people can come across to me as very cute in those ways. You know, but, you know, are Japanese people like Ewoks? Are you basically like Ewoks? Maybe. I'm sure Japanese people are perfectly capable of being, you know, mean and nasty and cruel and selfish and all that kind of thing and, and not cute. But I'm... You know, I'm sure I am just applying my filter to Japanese people just in the same way that they might apply a filter to me. You know, like just if I go to Japan, I'm Charisma Man, and when I meet Japanese people, they're a Japanese person, they're like super cute Ewok, Super Mario like uh, people. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I quite like the Ewok metaphor. I'm sorry, I just like it. I mean, Ewoks are cute uh, and loyal. Right, but they also they can be quite deadly, can't they? They can be, uh, they can be quite deadly. Uh, when you think about it, the Ewoks from Return of the Jedi in Star Wars are perhaps the most dangerous creatures in the Star Wars universe. When you think about it, they basically stopped the galactic the Galactic Empire. They killed all of the uh, the stormtroopers in Return of the Jedi, and they helped the rebels to destroy the second Death Star. They took down the whole Galactic Empire. You wouldn't want to have to fight against them, would you? You wouldn't. Even if they do look like cute little fluffy teddy bears. Um, I'm sure that they actually can be quite vicious. Also, if you remember, in Return of the Jedi, the Ewoks were originally planning to eat Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia and Han Solo and Chewbacca. Remember that? Remember that? Like uh, Luke Skywalker and Han and Leia are in the jungle and they get captured by the Ewoks. And the Ewoks have tied them to bits of wood and they're going to like burn them, cook them and eat them. So the Ewoks are like vicious carnivores, you know, don't underestimate them. Anyway, what I originally planned to say here was simply that Japanese people seem very cute to me and that cuteness or kawaii culture seems to have an important role in Japanese life. So why is this? And I'm not the only one to have noticed this. Lots of other people have noticed this too. Why is this? Why is everything so damn cute? Why is cuteness so important in Japanese culture? Well, I did a bit of reading, and uh, this is what Paul Ratner from BigThink.com says about this, okay? He says this, um, While you may dismiss cuteness as a regional peculiarity, there is science to back up the unexpected usefulness of kawaii in life. A study by researchers from the University of Hiroshima did several experiments on students and found that their performance on a variety of tasks like fine motor dexterity, so like little uh, physical tasks, and non-visual searches improved after viewing cute images of puppies and kittens. The, the scientists concluded that this is due to the increase in narrowing attentional focus that resulted from viewing the cute images. So basically, viewing cute things, looking at cute things, having cute things in your life helps you to focus, basically. Uh, and, um, you know, the scientists from the University of Hiroshima 
advocated the use of cute images and objects in workspaces to improve productivity productivity um so there you go um uh, so, you know, I often wonder how Japan manages to be so efficient. And I've always thought that uh, there was just something in the air there, which which means that people find the most convenient, stress-free ways of just getting on with things. And partly, it's that atmosphere, you know, that, that atmosphere is created by just focusing on certain pleasing things and trying to stay calm at all times. And I guess it's similar to the way that uh, British people just keep calm and carry on and try not to let emotions stop you from getting things done. In Japan, they seem to just emphasise the cuteness just because it makes you feel good and perhaps makes you feel protected and it reduces stress and it allows you to be more productive. And perhaps that's because Japan is actually quite a stressful place when you think about it. You know, the potential for natural disaster from earthquakes and volcanoes and things is quite high. You know, and if you think about that too much, you could freak out a little bit. You know, tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and typhoons and Godzilla. You know, they could all, they could wipe everything out. They could destroy everything. So just cute stuff, having cute things in your life helps you to deal with that a little bit. And perhaps also the Japanese sort of worship nature to an extent, you know, like they, they worship animals and things like that. And you can see it in the, the Japanese religion, Shintoism, which believes in the gods of every creature or every object. And each shrine in Shintoism is a shrine to a different god, like there's the, the, the fox shrine or the shrine for the mountain or the shrine for the stone or the shrine for this kind of bird. And so, you know, you feel this certain level of respect for like animals and and objects and things and it's it's as if everything in japan has its own pokemon character which is both cute and also potentially powerful and somehow japanese people are just in tune with all of that now i don't know if i'm overthinking this i probably am i'm probably thinking about it far too much i'm probably you know you know, Japanese people listening to this, you might be thinking, no, you, I don't know what you're talking about. It's quite possible. So maybe I'm just imagining it all. But, you know, it just seems to me that animals and objects are sometimes given a kind of cute personality just because this is the kind of respect that Japanese people attribute to things in our culture. Uh, things that, sorry, objects, things that in our culture would basically be meaningless. And in Japan, you know, Everything can have its own sort of special significance. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And if so, let me know what you think. Why are the Japanese preoccupied by cuteness? And are they the only ones? Maybe everyone loves cute stuff. I mean, God knows the internet is completely full of cat videos. We love cat videos. Um, here's another uh, uh, bit of reading that I did about cuteness in Japan. And this is from uh, a writer called Yumi Nakata, who is a Japanese writer on the website gaijinpot.com, which is a sort of uh, website for uh, expats living in Japan. And, sh and Yumi gives three reasons why kawaii culture is sort of important in Japan. The first reason is that kawaii usually refers to small children or babies and small animals. And if you think about it, those things, those, you know, babies and animals and creatures are helpless and they need to be cared for. And in a culture that values youth, both men and women are attracted to anything youthful. Women want to appear youthful and Japanese men are attracted to young girls. 
which is a bit odd. Uh, but just look at the popularity of bands like AKB48, which is a, a girl group of these like super cute young girls, which is extremely popular. So apparently, uh, uh, you know, the culture just values cuteness and, and youth. The second reason is that Japanese people work very long hours and they're under enormous amounts of social pressure. And cuteness is the total opposite of Japan's harsh reality. Um, and Yumi says, My sister, who works in IT, says that she enjoys going to stores full of cute products, especially after working long overtime hours. So cuteness is cool and soothing for Japanese people, and it allows them to escape from the realities of their life. And the third reason is that Uh, according to Yumi, is that Japan is collectively a society with a 12-year-old's mentality. And for many, there is a strong resistance to grow out of this pre-pubescent stage. As adults, Japanese people are expected to conform to strict social norms and expectations. However, as I mentioned above, children are always taken care of in Japanese society. Therefore, to cope with the harsh realities of adulthood, many Japanese people seek the comfort of cuteness. Um, okay. I'm going to stop now in this episode. That's as far as I'm going to go for this one because I've already spoken for nearly an hour and a half. I hope that you're still with me. Are you still listening to me, ladies and gentlemen, on this adventure into Japan and Japanese culture? Um, thanks for listening so far. Um, and well done for getting you all the way to this part in the episode. I'm now going to stop, but I will continue and I'll continue to talk about other things like uh, food and drink in Japan, communication style and language, um, weird and scary things that people don't often talk about. Uh, Godzilla, I'll talk about that. Uh, some of the mystery of, of Japan. Uh, friendship, uh, friendship that I have uh, with some Japanese people. And then I'll talk to you about the things that we did. I'll give you a little report on some of the things that we actually did, uh, the places we went to and the places we saw. And also that, uh, that comedy gig uh, that I did, uh, I will uh, tell you about that. Um, and also I'm going to play you a little recording of uh, the comedy gig um, from Japan. All right, so thanks for listening uh, thus far. And I'll speak to you again in the next episode. But for now, it's time to say... Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project 
possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.